Welcome to CSG Podcast. Uh, before I get started on today's podcast, I'd like to talk to you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th, and Blake and Wazee in a beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. Um, kind of uh, crappy weather right now. They have they are allowing 25% capacity outdoor slash indoor dining. Um, I, I personally wouldn't take up a snow-filled uh, outside dining experience with wine, but I would uh, go to bfwdenver.com and pick myself up some, uh, well, as my personal favorite, the 2017 Cabernet, um, but you could also go with maybe the Pinot. You could go with the, um, you got some Rieslings uh, from Western Slope Wineries. They've got um, some blends from Western Slope Wineries. I mean, it really is a local business and local businesses need your support. We see the light at the end of the tunnel, folks. The vaccine is coming. But until then, we got to support our businesses and get them just like to stay a little afloat as they, uh, as they wait out this awful, awful, awful pandemic. Um, you can go to bfwdenver.com and book your virtual wine tasting, or you know, you could just go to bfwdenver.com, order yourself a bottle, go down there, pick it up, or they can deliver it to you locally or have it shipped to you. Uh, just let them know and on the website, it's easy as pie. Uh, once again, they're located between 18th and 19th and Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coors Field, right in the middle of the dairy block. They are on Facebook and Instagram under Blanche Family Wines. When you go in, tell them Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast sent you. What is up, everybody? Thank you all for joining us on the latest CSG podcast. I am your co-host, Jeff Morton, and joining me, as always, is uh, my friend, your friend, everybody's friend, the guy in not New Mexico, currently in snow-covered Colorado. It's Pat Guerin. Hello, Pat. Morty, good day, sir. It's great to be with you. Yeah, we're, good to uh, see a friendly face. Yeah, it's a uh, friendly voice. It's been a uh, action-packed week. I, I, uh, you know, the last couple of podcasts we haven't had a ton of actual action to talk about, and this is kind of like one thing was really good, and another thing was one of the worst things I've ever seen. But do you want to start with the positive stuff, or do you want to go into the the, the well, elephant in the room? Let's start with the positive stuff because we got to find glimmers of hope uh, somewhere. And, uh, and surprises in, in politics are uh, increasingly rare, it seems. Mm -hmm. Of course, uh, 2016 uh, was a huge surprise to a lot of us think we know everything. Um, uh, but then since then, things kind of went as planned, you know, the midterms and, uh, and those sorts of things. But I think I said on the podcast here um, towards uh, late December, uh, that I was pretty pessimistic about uh, the Democrats' chance of winning in Georgia. And right. it just seemed like all the headwinds were kind of against another Georgia miracle. I mean, I'm still kind of in shock that Joe Biden was able to pull it off. Um, and it wasn't to diminish any of the work of all the great organizers and Stacey Abrams and others down there. Uh, it just seemed like a heavy lift because remember, in November, the reason there's a runoff is because nobody got 50%. But 
the, the Republican candidates had more votes than the, than the Democratic candidates on in both of those Senate races. And so for there to be a runoff then and have that flips just seemed like too big of a lift. And I think even the Biden, uh, incoming Biden administration or uh, officials close to the president-elect felt the same way right. through some of the actions that they were doing. And they were sort of um, looking towards some more moderate people to uh, nominate. Uh, you notice they waited until uh, the results for Merrick Garland to get nominated as attorney general because they're going to have to fill his seat on the <clears throat> on the D.C. circuit um, there. So um, it was a stunning sort of upset. I know you and I briefly texted that night. Uh, yeah. And I think I was like, you know, can, is it too early to be optimistic? Because these guys are leading and, and it looks like the vote totals are kind of, uh, you know, looking in our favor as we learned from election night, you know, those mail-in ballots, early voting, right. urban centers break heavily towards the Democrats. And those were what was largely outstanding as the night went on. And so uh, to have the realization um, just to kind of put it in perspective of how I personally processed it, were two days last week where I had very light and sort of non-productive sleep. And one of them was on Tuesday night when I was just so sort of like satisfied and felt like, wow, we have a real chance here of having some progress be made under a Biden administration, having some success moving through the, um, through the nomination process for the cabinet and then also uh, the judiciary. Um, it was a big surprise to me and I felt really good about it. And, um, yeah, so that I, I was think, great. I think, uh, Ossoff and, uh, Warnock winning is significant for many reasons. Uh, one of them is a Jewish and black African American, uh, man, men were elected in a deep South state, which is, uh, I think a, a great sign. And I think that should be celebrated. And one of the things about the thing that happened the very next day that was so, compounded what was already so jarring was that this should have been celebrated. This was, this was a monumental moment where you have Georgia electing two democratic senators and they're both uh, not white. And it was, I think something that I, I would, I, I was kind of euphoric, not in a Biden, when Biden won kind of way, but in a, I, I, this is a good sign for the United States kind of way. And yeah. that, that that's really was my thought coming out of that it was like, oh my, this is good. And, and, and only, not only that, and you are absolutely right, Pat. Um, having the majority in the Senate now for Joe Biden is so huge. It was going to be, and we all know it, McConnell was going to fight him on nominations that they didn't care for, right? And... Uh, I think Merrick Garland would have been a uh, kind of a, uh, for back of the, lack of a better term, a fuck you kind of kind of moment if Mitch McConnell was still in uh, in the as Senate Majority Leader. Um, we can all say what we want about Chuck Schumer and his ability to lead the Democrats, but um, we we have, uh, I mean, Harry Reid was very good. Um, I think. Chuck Schumer is going to have an easier path um, because all they have to do is just pass out a committee and then vote on the floor. They don't need 67 votes. So this is, this is good. Um, and on, you know, on judicial appointees, that's judicial, correct. Yes. yes. But there's still, you know, there's still a filibuster issue to deal with on, um, on a lot of things. Like, you know, they can 
do a couple of things this year through reconciliation, budget reconciliation. Right. They could probably pass a fix to uh, Obamacare, which will moot the Supreme Court case that's been heard and will be decided in the spring. Uh, so that literally could have been something that prevents the Supreme Court ruling against Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, right. um, you know, which is a huge deal. And it, it's interesting you point out, and, you, um, and, uh, and it reminds me when you talk about how we felt after Biden won. Imagine if when Biden won, these elections had gone this way as well the same day. Yeah. It would have changed the entire tenor, I think, um, and, and blunted to a certain extent the arg- some of the arguments, although they were probably always going to be there anyway, of... Uh, of what was going to happen, you know, in the ensuing two and a half months. But um, I think that the delayed gratification there, um, you know, allowed you to think of how bad things might be and then have a little bit of optimism. And you were allowed to have that for about uh, 12 hours. Well, let's just put it to you this way. While certain other thing was going on, uh, they announced that Ossoff was officially the winner outside the recount uh, uh, boundary threshold yeah and it's a it's a shame because i mean i really really want to celebrate the fact that these guys both warnock and ansov came in and did what was seen i think what even four years ago two years ago as impossible as i remember stacy abrams lost the that's right uh, the governor's race in 2018 under auspicious circumstances, but I'm not here to cast aspersions on settled elections. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then to turn it around two years later and not only deliver a, uh, the state of Georgia to Joe Biden on election week or right. election season, um, but then to, to win those two Senate seats and for those two Senate seats to be so consequential. I mean, right. it's such a unique sort of quirk of the federalist system where you have states kind of deciding how they're going to adjudicate their elections, even for federal office, that, you know, this is just another sort of glitch in the system where it's like, oh, well, um, if they both win, then it's 50-50. And since you won the White House, you've got an advantage with the vice president and the president of the Senate. If they lose, then it's kind of like more gridlock. If they split, then it's still like gridlock. It was like, you know, they had longer odds. They had to win both seats in order to make it happen. And I'll be interested to see the autopsy of the uh, the runoff election down the road and, and like what they point to the reasons why Warnock seemed to win more handily than Ossoff. And, you know, I'm sure we all have theories on what that could be, but it is fascinating from like a political science perspective. And also, I think it really does announce that, um, you know, Georgia is the next uh, Virginia, the next swing state that like the demographics and the recent sort of turn and in uh, electoral success is going to make that less and less of a swing state going forward and that just lines up other states um mainly texas Mm -hmm. as sort of the next one in that group um i think florida is always an anomaly because they have a unique um collection of uh demographics there and um and history and partisan politics but uh it seems like you know if i was up for re-election in texas and um four years, Ted Cruz, uh, then I would definitely be concerned about, um, you know, a, a good Democratic candidate being able to, to really take that, that seat. I think Ted Cruz and uh, his brethren at, in, from Missouri, Josh Hawley, both should be concerned for uh, a, a different reason. <laughs> but there is a, uh, I think there is a kind of like, you look at it this way. All right, the Democrats lost Ohio. I think the Democrats have per- permanently lost Ohio. I think, I think, you see the trend and the trend is really far away from Democrats in Ohio for whatever reason. I don't know why it happened, but it it went from a swing state to firmly, in my view, a firmly 
uh, red state. Uh, but same same time, Democrats have like the last since Obama basically picked up Virginia. Um, North Carolina's on the edge, right? Um, Georgia's, you know, who, who knows what the next election is going to look like. Um, and you're right about Texas. Now, the one that, that I think the most surprising one outside of, uh, of, um, of Georgia was obviously Arizona. Um, Florida of the West, I call it. Yeah, yes, yes. And uh, obviously, they, they're, they're about to censure uh, uh, which McCain, Cindy McCain. Yeah, that, and that's not that's just the Republican Party there. Um, for not, for that's criticizing not even the legislature or anything. <laughs> for criticizing, the first line of it is like about how she had like struggled with addiction and drug abuse in her past or something, as if that is a reason <laughs> to make a public rebuke of another human being. Um, <laughs> I mean, the So, you know, in Arizona, um, the, they have a minority party there now, um, have at least in federal politics with two Democratic senators. Um, but, you know, their Republican Party is still very loud and they are in all, this, all the blue states, you know. I mean, we live in a decidedly blue state here in Colorado, but the influence of, uh, of the red parts of the state is very similar to what you see in states like Missouri and, and others where you have... Uh, um, a, a majority, essentially, of, uh, of voters that are sort of happy where the modern Republican Party finds itself. And also, just when you brought up Josh Howley, I always like to point out, like, I can't think of a greater drop-off in recent years between Claire McCaskill yeah. and uh, losing that election to uh, Josh Howley. And I think that underscores how Missouri actually is another one of the states similar to Ohio that's kind of going getting more out of reach for democrats mm -hmm. right. um you know there was there was a time when it was a you know maybe even a not a, a presidential um swing state but certainly uh sending some uh, democrats to the u.s senate um but it seems like that is unlikely although the impact of the most recent events on future electoral races is to be determined i think <clears throat> The fact that the Democrats were able to get regain control of the Senate blunts a lot of the criticism they were getting for losing House seats. And uh, obviously it's by the skin of their teeth, but they now have control all, you know, they control two of the three branches, uh, obviously narrowly, but they do. And I think that part is going to really help a lot. Um, <clears throat> coming into what is going to be a very pivotal year in the history of our country with the pandemic, with the fallout from the election, <clears throat> all that is coming together at the same time. And the fact that you now have a way to really, at least maybe not permanently, but really begin to reset the dial is important to me fundamentally because I believe that the enableism of Trump was almost worse than Trump. And that is something that the Republicans will never come to terms with. It will never come to terms with how they enabled this guy to do this because they feel like uh, they can push it off onto, well, uh, and, and this is something we can get in, we'll get into in a bit. Joe Biden needs to bring the, the, the country together after what happened on Wednesday. 
I, I don't think that's on Joe Biden to do right now. I think, I well, think that's, on, that's, on, that's on the Republicans. I mean, I talk about every week that we discuss these things, the asymmetry in the parties. And uh, the truth is that the Republicans are just better at the sort of um, blind execution and like brute force enactment of their view of government where, and that aligns also with their political philosophy. Um, whereas Democrats as being this party that's about, you know, my definition is, you know, they're more about outreach to people that, you know, maybe don't typically participate in elections, people that are, you know, poor, pe the people that are minorities or immigrants, things like that. You know, the Democrats sort of openly court those types of voters. And as a result, they don't, govern, you know, with Thor's hammer, like uh, right. Mitch McConnell and Republicans are famous for, and Trump exploited that big time. Right. And it's not because the Republicans are stronger, because you saw, <laughs> as you just alluded to, that they weren't able to stand up to Trump and say, like, no, we have these party principles, we have these things that are important to us. I mean, they literally acquiesced the platform to, we support everything Donald Trump does, um, you know, in the latest election, which... Mm -hmm. In the past, you know, even the major nominees have, have considered, you know, that they've had to make some compromises on platform items in order to keep parts of their party together. And so the same thing that keeps, that makes the Democrats appealing to me, which is sort of their diversity and their sort of inclusion and a wide range of issues that affect all, all people differently, um, are their weakness when it comes to like rounding everyone up together and pushing things through. You're starting to already see it with Joe Manchin, who's going to be a big pain in our ass as Democrats. Uh, yeah. You know, we, yes, we have 50 senators, but one of them is barely a Democrat from West Virginia. And, um, and yeah. so it's going to be a challenge to keep those things together. I hope Chuck Schumer's the man for the job. Um, you know, sometimes I wonder why when these major resets happen, there isn't some talk of like maybe somebody else, maybe somebody with a bit more charisma or a bit more deal-making capability or whatever than the minority leader had in the previous Congress. We just anoint the majority leader next. Right. And I don't have anyone that I'm specifically like trying to nominate for that role or whatever, but you know, there's countless people I think that are great senators that don't necessarily bring the whole, you know, the, the problem is, is you do have an optics issue when you talk about, you know, you've got Chuck Schumer going to lead the Senate. He's from New York City. Right. And then you've got Nancy Pelosi and, you know, she's from San Francisco, which is like a swear word conservative circles yeah. uh even though it's one of my favorite cities um uh -huh. check it out when you can travel again yeah. um it's a great city so <laughs> it's sort of fascinating how there's just never any sort of discussion of like hey we've got this new president and this, and like let's be honest this president's like in his 70s he's old you know he was elected to the senate before i was even born um and uh and then we're also just going to have the same old guard in the Congress. They're just going to, one of them is just going to have an elevated role. Yeah. And I think we can kind of transition from, from this, from the ideas to, to the um, very scary uh, thing that happened on Wednesday, something that I think will fundamentally change our country. Um, and I will give my description of what you, what I, what we saw and then you can give yours because I think we got something similar, but mine, mine was, we saw a president whip up his base because he is, well, there's nothing more dangerous than someone who's aware that he's losing power. And I think the race in Georgia was the key to Trump 
completely I mean he was unglued anyway but being it's going from unglued to batshit crazy because he's desperate and I think the Georgia race was more proof that he no longer has the power that he thinks he does or he did and uh, what happened was he became inept and he wanted to get that ineptitude back uh, not ineptitude back but yeah he wanted to reclaim his ineptitude. No, he wanted to get he wanted to get his strength back, and going down to that rally and telling them to march to the Capitol was the sign of a increasingly unhinged, desperate man, who was basically thought that this was his last resort, and it was one of the darkest days. Well, maybe the darkest day other than nine eleven of since I've been alive. Um, I, I can't, I never seen anything like it. And we, we were very lucky, very lucky that no congressmen, congresswomen, senators were killed, kidnapped. I mean, they were saying, hang Mike Pence. That's what they were chanting. And the president is 100% responsible for what happened. 100%. And it was shocking. Shocking beyond any measure that I've ever seen. I mean, I can only attempt to make it even more stark uh, because it was very reminiscent to me of 9-11 because it was something that we were watching unfold in real time on television. Right. And it started off by being like, oh, this is odd. Or, oh, man, they're getting close to the Capitol. Or, oh, I mean, I remember on 9-11, I was watching the Today Show when it happened and... Um, <clears throat> Matt Lauer was the anchor and, and he was like, oh, it looks like a small, like Cessna plane must have crashed into the World Trade Center there. We'll, we'll keep an eye on that. And then as they're keeping an eye on it, 747 clearly smashes into the, the other tower. And then you're like, oh, that was not a Cessna, you know? And so in this case, it was like, okay, yeah, there's a big rally. You know, what are these guys, um, you know, sort of people that are out there to like explain sort of try to deal with their cult-like following of their dear leader and, and what's happening. And, um, you know, then as the barricade started to come down and uh, the, the, the capital was breached and, you know, at first I was like, man, it's sickening to see like the damage, you know, the um, just, you know, the stealing of things and the breaking of the windows. And, you know, this is the people's house. This is, it was accurately described but then when you started um processing it as time went on and you started seeing these guys in like you know full like military regalia zip ties um the pipe bombs and things found later um some of the like vehicles being seized with explosives and um you start to see that it really was in a lot of ways um as horrifying as it was, it wasn't as horrifying as they intended it to be. But it also showed that, you know, a, 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 an angry mob can overrun the things that we think are, are secure. Um, the idea that the U.S. Capitol, while there's a joint session of Congress and the Vice President of the United States is there, um, can just be overrun um, is stunning. I mean, right. you want to talk about the 9-11 Commission going back and seeing all the failure of imagination and the um, sort of notion that it couldn't happen here and all that. Um, it's exactly what happened here is that there were there was ample warning. And, and I, I would I have to assume that 
counterintelligence and domestic intelligence community and the FBI, you know, was seeing these things in the white supremacists, you know, sort of chatter space and such. Um, but for the Capitol Police to say that they nobody could have imagined this and all that is just stunning. And, you know, there'll be time for, re, for recriminations later. But I just think that looking back on it, you know, four or five days after the fact, it, it's still just almost unbelievable that it happened in the United States of America that, you know, that not only did it happen, but then that everybody just walked out of there, you know, um, that there was no mass arrest of these people, you know, face down on the Capitol steps, get hauled off in buses to processing in federal facilities, that they just, you know, I mean, there's been people that have been arrested in the ensuing days, you know, in Ohio and in Iowa and Florida and Arizona and Hawaii. Like, how do they get back to these places? You know, what the hell is going on there? So um, very dark days. And uh, to your point, um, we are quite fortunate that as sophisticated or as sort of um, shockingly coordinated some of this seemed to be, um, there were a handful of critical things that occurred that prevented it from being so much worse. And, uh, and, you know, we can be thankful for that later, but in the interim, you know, we need to be on high alert. I mean, there is going to be another event at the, at the Capitol, um, you know, in 10 days. And um, that is something that has to be a high priority target for those that have gotten so far down this, rabbit hole of conspiracy and fraud and all these things that were perpetrated from madmen like Trump and mainstream, seemingly mainstream members of the Republican party. And uh, that's why they're now so quick to talk about unity and don't do anything to make those people mad again and all that, which is totally counter to their entire worldview through the cold war and uh, Iraq and all the other things that they held dear about expanding American values to other places that people didn't share them. You know, I'm, I'm, There's going to be a deep autopsy on what happened that day, which was what, January 6th? And January 6th will go down as, I think, in my view, it'll go down as the day that we found out that the complicity was far beyond just morons uh, who are getting riled up and painting their face and wearing buffalo horns, right? There is... There is uh, something intrinsically deeply deeply wrong and deeply directed about what happened there and i think it's going to probably take down of some people in this country uh who are lawmakers for inciting stoking um but what is disturbing to me is they were aware of all this, and the National Guard took them what uh, two hours to finally get deployed there. And the and the governor of Maryland was the one who had to get it done. That, considering yeah. that the vice president was in there, the vice president, the speaker of the house, the Senate majority leader, the minority leader, and the leader of the house, they're all there, and the National Guard took two hours to get there well i mean and there's your chief argument for dc statehood as well um but i'm not as optimistic as you about that morty i don't think that there's going to be a political price for a lot of these people to pay i don't think that ted cruz fears not getting reelected at all i don't think that josh Hawley has blunted his aspirations to run for president at all i don't i mean the problem is is all the things that we're saying 
are now partisan beliefs, whether they end up being, you know, factually true or not, or whether an autopsy or uh, a commission sort of investigating or whatever uh, determines, there's still a significant governing minority, people that espouse these views and their personal political fortunes are benefited from them. And that's why you see the the new rage about uh, censorship and big tech and leftist tech or whatever um, after uh, the actions of uh, Facebook, Twitter, and others this week. Um, this morning on here on Sunday morning, you know, it's, it's Nikki Haley and Mike Pompeo, you know, just screaming at the top of their lungs about how many followers they're losing on Twitter. Um, sort of like whistling past the graveyard of what some of the obvious reasons that that could be, which as I uh, think AOC tweeted, like uh, when Twitter announces they're purging neo-Nazis and you announce you've lost a ton of followers, maybe don't advertise it, you know? And the ability to, to not see that is, it's not that they don't see it. It's that right. they won't say it because right. of who they're talking to. And they're talking to a constituency, which has been poisoned. And, you know, this, and this predates Trump. This is Sarah Palin. This is the Tea Party. This is the cynicism of politics as sport and win at any cost. And whoever is going to come and join your fold, let them, you know, it's not about a battle of ideas as it used to be discussed, you know, and, and sort of a simpler time. It's, it's not about big government versus small government. I mean, look at the government right. that has been in place for the past four years. It's not a conservative government at all, No, but it's a, it's fueled by disdain for the other side. And, and, you know, for Ari Fleischer to be out there, you know, spouting off on Twitter, former press secretary for George Bush during the Iraq war of all things, um, you know, talking about like, what did you expect, you know, when you're saying not my president and having the resistance, of course, this kind of thing is going to happen. It's like, this is a Bush administration official saying like, you know, this is entirely predictable and you get what you deserve. That is completely outside what had been the mainstream American politics in the two party system, right. uh, you know, for a generation. Right. And I, I, I guess, I guess the, the, the grand scheme of things, the, I still think the biggest thing Joe Biden needs to do when he gets inaugurated is uh, immediately do the defense, defense production act and nationalize this vaccine distribution. That's number one, right? Um, he's, there's just, there's just, he, there's just, the, that's the first thing that he needs to mobilize because the pandemic is obviously exacerbating things right now and people are getting nuts. And that obviously is part of the consideration, getting that mobilized and getting that done will alleviate a lot of, um, not all of it, and maybe not even most of it, but some of the issues we're having right now. Um, the, the rest of it, like what they're doing right now with impeachment, I, I mean, I go back and forth. I seem, I, I, I don't know what, we'll kind of, uh, kind of bring it into the home stretch with this, Pat. Impeachment. Resignation, 25th Amendment, all this stuff for Trump. Uh, what Trump did is there's no dispute about what he did. No one is disputing that Trump incited a mob to, ascend, to descend on the Capitol. That's just, it's 100% what happened. Um, 
impeachment probably, well, I mean, Mitch McConnell already said the trial wouldn't begin till the 19th, right? Uh, so he's obviously kicking it down the calendar in order to not have to deal with it, basically. Um, and then a new Congress comes in on the 20th, and then he wouldn't have a say in it. But by that point, you know, Trump's gone. Mike Pence has apparently indicated to people that he is keeping the 21st Amendment available uh, in case Trump gets more unstable, which I found to be darkly hilarious. Um, Pence. <laughs> And then there's resignation. I have a theory that I think Trump is going to try to extract all the leverage he can and cause as much chaos as he can before he will eventually resign. I think that is his goal is to exert, not necessarily from this riot, but while he remains from this day on, he's going to try to do that in order to exert as much leverage as he can before he leads to either get a part, secure a pardon or to get assurances that he won't be prosecuted. Well, that's a lot to unpack, Morty. Um, for starters, no way in hell he resigns. I can't even, yeah. resign isn't in his, his vocabulary. I mean, he couldn't even concede the election that he lost by 7 million votes and was decisive across the country and had the same electoral outcome of the greatest win ever, his own yeah. win in 2016. Right. So uh, he doesn't think he did anything wrong. And so he has no reason to resign. The people that are around him are sycophants and they have been all along and they helped to create the environment that exists today. And to hear former chief of staffs like John Kelly or Mick Mulvaney now say, oh, you know, no surprise here. This is what Trump was. Okay, well, too late for your image cleansing as well. Okay. I mean, this is just who he is. We always knew it. There were people out there talking about it as we were talking before the show. Hillary Clinton warned about it. Um, Adam Schiff talked about it in impeachment. And that's the next thing is like impeachment. There was a chance to impeach him. And it was a ridiculous partisan trial that wouldn't allow any evidence into the record because everybody had just decided that they were going to vote in party lines on both sides. And, you know, that's no trial. And um, what needs to happen in my estimation, I mean, you start to hear, um, <clears throat> Nancy Pelosi float this sort of idea is they'll go ahead and pass an impeachment resolution in the house and then they'll just hold it, not send it to the Senate. And then, you know, I think uh, Clyburn was saying today, like, you know, they'll let Joe Biden have his first hundred days and then they'll send it over to the Senate. And the thing about that is, and, and I'm, is that if they have a trial or they, if they send it to the Senate, they can have a trial. They need two thirds, you know, to convict. And right. even if the president or president Trump was already removed from office, um, you know, it wouldn't matter um, because that would never happen. They're not going to get 17 um, Republicans to vote on impeachment unless the political winds change dramatically. Right. But then immediately afterwards, they could vote by a simple majority to strip him of all presidential privileges, of all ability to run for federal office. And that's why something has to be done. Like the idea that this quote unquote billionaire is going to go off and have a presidential pension and a lifetime of secret service protection. And while he travels around to his golf courses and does whatever he wants is an affront to, you know, the brave people that fought to protect the Capitol uh, on January 6th. Right. And the idea that he is going to just be out there creating a, a Twitter alternative or a Fox news alternative or whatever um, is freaking outrageous. And 
there has to be some consequence in the public sphere um, that's like, hey, you know, you can listen to like all the all that you want. He's never allowed to run for federal office again. That's a different conversation than, you know, on January 20th from Mar-a-Lago, he delivers a sort of um, simultaneous address to the nation about how he's launching his 2024 campaign. Like that is just going to create a scenario just like we saw in the Capitol on the 6th. It's going to create angry people that are whipped up and that are willing to do everything, including die, uh, in order to progress this agenda, which is like ill-defined and basically based upon like self-pity and, you know, the dusting of overt racism and anti-immigrant attitudes and things like that. So, um, you know, there has to be something done. And that brings me back to the idea of like, don't fall into the trap of healing America and bringing us all together, which is exactly why the Republicans are using those words because they know that Democrats are susceptible to doing just that right. and using that as their excuse. Um, there has to be recriminations. And, uh, you know, you started to see it, uh, not that it's like the biggest deal in the world, but you see private industry like Facebook and Twitter and others be like, okay, you guys are all done. You're not going to be on our platforms anymore. Um, maybe they could have done that sometime, any, any of several times in the past. Um, you know, I think you can make the case for sure that they should have, but um, you know, those are big moves and big moves need to continue coming from the government because this is the kind of thing that is dangerous. It's dangerous to the stability of democracy in the United States. And yeah. everyone needs to be aware of that, no matter what party you are. And, you know, just in conclusion on this diatribe, um, I want there to be a second party in American politics. I want there to be a conservative political party that holds seats in the House and in the Senate and runs for the presidency and wins sometimes and helps to craft legislation that isn't all just partisan based upon who's in majority power. And I think that that is so important um, for our system to have two equal parties that have different governing philosophies. Right. So that we hope for that the you know that compromise legislation and such ends up being widely beneficial and representing people the best way possible. Right. Um, but this party is not that. Uh, at that rally on the morning of the sixth, Donald Trump Jr. was spouting about how this is Donald Trump's Republican Party, um, and, and there's no doubt that that's the case. And until they do something about that, then you know that's this is just where we are. We're going to be constantly on the edge of sedition. Yeah. And I'm, and I, and I think here that, as I said, you know, to start this segment is that Joe Biden said that he's not concerned about the deficit, which is one of the, uh, that was a great signal that he wants to do what it takes to pull us out of where we're at. And obviously that, as I said, defense protection act, maybe mobilizing, uh, getting the governors to mobilize the national guard, giving them money to do so get people vaccinated, get us out of this thing. Um, and he understands the, the, the need to do this. Um, flip side of that is we have a Rep Republican party that is not functional in a traditional sense. You have party conservatives and you have Trumpists. And it's, it's, it's a weird amalgamation it's not like it's not like uh democrats where you know as you described before it's like herding cats everyone has roughly the same idealistic bent 
in the Democratic Party. It's just there's a basic difference on, on how to accomplish what you want to do. Because um, the Republicans' basic governing uniting philosophy is to own the libs, is to say fuck you to people right. that don't agree with them. And right. that is a wide tent. That's a big tent of people that you can incorporate, and including people that you can spin up with lunatic type of uh, uh, calls to action and, you know, manufactured grievances. And so, you know, therein lies the asymmetry between the two, is that you've got one party that could be considered, you know, by some to be socialists and like far leftists and things like that, but their ideology is based in their f- political philosophy, not in the idea that the opposite political philosophy is like sort of a- the antithesis of everything that should be held dear by a human being. And when you're having those two different conversations, there's no middle ground. There's no common language to, uh, to communicate. And so, there needs to be an eradication really. And like, a, and hopefully a, a reemergence of a true um, sort of a conservative party that, that does prevent the extreme left agenda from gaining minor or my super majority status over time because um, of the refusal of the conservative side to participate in the normal form of American election elections and electoral politics. So one thing I have figured out is that this country hates extremes. And it is something that is that at, I think at, at, at times I wish they was more inclined to be more to my point of view. But as I told Tim Miller on my podcast, I, I, I didn't realize I was a uh, I didn't realize how conservative I would appear, even though I consider myself a pretty much standard Democrat until I joined Twitter. And then I'm like, holy shit. Uh, there are people who think that you know me just being a standard democrat is too conservative i didn't realize that and 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 as the flip side of that is that there are right-wing nut jobs and i and i don't really like equating left far left people with far right people because far left people at least most of the time their 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 idealistic goal is to help people or at least in their within their purview is like we are being in American politics in true. American politics. Yes. They want to help people. So I, I, I am not, I don't want to equate them together, but when you go to the either extreme, the United States, and this, I don't know why people don't understand this at this point rejects it. It there's a, there's a mechanism within the, just fundamentally within this, this country that wants to draw people into to the center. Not that, not that they're centrists, but they want to draw people in closer to where they are. Uh, particularly these political parties, and um, I think that mechanism was was on full display with uh, Warnock and Ossoff, uh, two relatively moderate Democrats, uh, winning and Joe Biden winning. Uh, and I think I think what you will see, and I, we said this after the election, people just wanted normal, and people who are relatively bog standard uh democrats are considered normal well i mean what you're describing there is essentially is the design of how the political system is supposed to work yeah. but the political system in large part has been usurped by the partisan system right. and where politics became sport where it became more important that my guy with the right name letter after his name wins in spite of the fact that you know he might not or they might not 
have the same values or they might have some character issues that you object to. You know, it's gotten to the point where it used to be that a Democrat could vote for a Republican or a Republican could vote for a Democrat. And it wouldn't be that odd where now you'd be shunned by your community if you were to like admit that outwardly. You know? yeah. And so therein lies the danger. And maybe Joe Biden is the type of guy that could put the pieces back together. But the reality is he's facing a much harder um, launch to his administration than even Barack Obama did at the end of the, or at the beginning of the financial crisis in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, they had to move swiftly, um, but they had coordination with the existing administration and basically said like, Hey, tell us what we need to do to set you up for when you take over in a month. That has, that isn't happening at all. No. Um, and the, the issues are much deeper. Not only do we have an economic um, sort of crisis on our hands that's driven by the pandemic, as you mentioned, and then this new sort of uh, um, additional obstacle thrown into the equation of rioting in the the capital of the United States. Um, that's going to be a tall order. And and Joe Biden, you know, is it going to be a traditional candidate who uses the lectern far more um, judiciously than Donald Trump did? But the question will be, is there still a, a middle audience for that out there? Are there still people out there that are inclined to be conservative, but are interested in being comforted and consoled by the commander in chief when bad things happen, mm-hmm. that are interested in supporting legislation and social sort of programs or policies that come up along the way that will benefit them personally, in spite of how their party might perceive it? Those are going to be the open questions, and we're going to see answers to them you know, right away. Um, but it's a it's a process that's going to take a long time if if it's to be successful. Well, as usual, Mr. Garen gets the last word. Uh, <laughs> this scenario. Um, well, we will be back uh, pretty soon to discuss. Hopefully, it's I, and I'm gonna. I really do mean this. I hope it's less eventful <laughs> than this week was. I I I I hope that it is. I'm sending all the good vibes into the universe less eventful the next time that uh, Pat and I do a CSG politics because ain't no one want to spend a week like we just did. No one does. Exactly. Let's hope for just like a, a slow roll into a inauguration day. And next week we can talk about uh, kind of what it's going to feel like on uh, the 20th when uh, a new president takes over and uh, the country has an opportunity to go in a new direction. Um, so I hope that can be uh, a conversation that is uh, at the top of of the political nerd class that we consider ourselves to be a part of uh, next week. All right. Okay. Well, uh, once again, Pat gets final, final word. Let's, uh, let's all uh, hope that everything goes smoothly for inauguration and uh, he and I will be back to talk about the, whatever happens. So adios. <laughs> <laughs>